Hi everybody, today we're going to be talking about the graphic novel Jokes and the Unconscious, which was written by Daphne Gottlieb and illustrated by Diane D. Massa. Alright, so this graphic novel follows the summer and the life of one character named Sasha, and it's the summer that her father dies, basically. It's a bit of a look at her time at home, the people who she meets along the way, we'll get into all the other nitty gritty stuff. But a lot of it ends up being tied around like her father, his illness, and her job at a local hospital. If you haven't read the graphic novel yet, please do so so that you can follow along with this podcast. This is a content warning. The graphic novel we will be talking about today contains depictions of child abuse, sexual violence, and terminal illness. We're going to be covering a lot of things today. First, we're going to be talking about this work and its relation to Freud's jokes and their relation to the unconscious. We're also going to be talking about trauma, narration, as well as a bunch of other literary things such as repetition and motifs. Don't worry if you have a hard time following along, we will explain everything. So the first thing that we should probably talk about is how this work was influenced by Freud. Just a very brief explanation of Freud's work in relation to jokes. Pretty much what you need to know about his theory of jokes is that jokes are essentially bubbles from your unconscious that need to come out and so they come out to the surface into your consciousness in the form of jokes. So jokes allow you to process things that you normally would not be able to. A big one is sexuality or other kinds of trauma. So keeping this in mind, let's start our analysis slash review of this work. So one way that you can see the bubbling of the unconscious in this work is through the narration. So yeah, one of the things that's so unique about this novel is that it's non-linear, a novel, graphic novel, that it's non-linear. And why that's so interesting is that as you're kind of going through, it sort of starts with her getting the summer job, and she gives a bit of a kind of overview, but then it sort of weaves in memories from before her father passes away, after her father passes away, different days in the hospital, different encounters that she has, and it's so fascinating because it jumps from moments where she's with somebody like with her family for example and then it'll just jump to her seeing a friend of hers and it's like not really clear what the timeline is and I think that's so fascinating as a story from a trauma perspective. So there's definitely a lot of trauma in this book including trauma from life-threatening illnesses, sexual violence trauma, childhood abuse, grief, there's all that good stuff in there. Mm. But the author and the illustrator do a really good job of communicating all that without being so graphic that it's triggering. At least that was my experience. So one of the ways that they prevent this very graphic depiction is through symbolism. For example, whenever Sasha feels very upset or that her heart is breaking, there's usually a kind of a graphic illustration of a heart, and either it looks like it's breaking or it's shooting itself or something like that, but it's very surrealist and symbolic. Instead of actually showing her in pain or showing her facial expression in pain, which I think would be more triggering, they use a lot of these symbols instead. One of my favorite passages of the book, actually, is when Sasha's girlfriend, Jet, is testifying her sexual child abuse from her uncle. 
If you have the book on you, you can follow along with us. It's on page 57. So essentially, it looks like a collage because it was childhood sexual violence. Jet tells Sasha that she shaves her pubes because she was teased a lot for it by her uncle. And on the page with the testimony, it says, my uncle started touching me. And it has a picture of this little monkey stuffed animal. Now we know that stuffed animals are a reoccurring theme or a symbol throughout the book. They represent childhood. So whereas Sasha's stuffed animal that represents her childhood is a rabbit, Jet's was a monkey. So we see this monkey here, there. And then the rest of the illustrations are kind of childlike, or about half of them are childlike. In the picture of the uncle, he's just a crudely drawn devil. You don't actually get to see what he looks like. And then when they talk a little bit more about the details, they turn into stick figures. So you get less and less details as the trauma narration continues. And of course, there's a depiction of a spinal cord and a heart because Sasha's father had a tumor on his spinal cord and he also had a heart attack. So those are reoccurring themes in the book. The font is also in the style of a collage or like one of those letters that you get in the movies for like a threat, a blackmail kind of thing. So it can be seen as either blackmail, right? Like, oh, if you tell anybody this, they're going to stop loving you. Or it can be seen as a child's collage. So it fits either way. But what I really like about this testimony is all of the symbols that prevent you from getting triggered. It gives you a lot to work with intellectually in terms of analysis, but it also protects you as the audience. So I just thought this page was absolutely brilliantly done. And for example, at the end, when Sasha is talking to Jet, you don't see them upset talking to themselves. You just see their stuffed animals sort of sitting side by side. And Sasha, the rabbit, has her hand on the monkey's shoulder and that's it. Well, I think like that symbolic depiction mixed with a little nonlinear narrative, it's meant to not trigger individuals who might be kind of sensitive to these topics, right? It's to allow for this like release of tension. I think if you were to kind of follow like a strict narrative, uh, and if it had been too literalistic, it either would have been overwhelming to somebody who had kind of gone through these things and it would have just been too much, or it would have just dragged on in a way that would have lost the message, I think. There's something very powerful with symbols that make these stories universal in ways that like a literal thing people kind of pull back from, even people who haven't necessarily experienced it themselves. And then on top of that, like again, nonlinear narratives, it forces you to pay more attention. At least I find personally. Because I'll be looking at something and then again there'll be a scene switch and at first you're like, oh like especially early on in a work, you'll think, oh okay, so it's just the next day or the next week or whatever. Until you realize later on as you kind of go forward, it's like, oh wait, no, this happened at some other period in time. So why is the author doing this? And so in a weird way, it forces you to work more intellectually and maybe distance yourself emotionally. Maybe not necessarily, but I feel like that's always my response. And then on the other hand, it just makes it easier to kind of consume everything. It's a lot more digestible when you have these kind of smaller parts that aren't necessarily in order. Agreed. And I think thematically, it works really well with the symbolism. I also just wanted to compare very quickly the testimony that I was just talking about on page 57, essentially Jet's testimony to when Sasha herself is essentially raped 
some people wouldn't consider it rape. I would consider it rape because she's basically pressured into having sex with her quote-unquote best friend. Mm -hmm. And when it starts to get disturbing, that's when the symbolism kicks in. And that is so awesome. At one point, the best friend who is essentially raping her, he turns into an octopus. And he also turns into a wolf, which ties into Little Red Riding Hood and, again, this motif of childhood. He also turns into a jester with penises on his head <laughs> and bells hanging out of the, like, penis. <laughs> and then she turns into a corpse. So there's a lot of symbolism when she starts to feel pain, which is great because it's not triggering. So initially, when I first read this sequence, I was a little bit worried because the first two panels are very normal. You see her and I could feel my emotions, kind of the panic rising. And then just as that was rising, the symbolism kicks in. So it's not as safe as Jet's testimony. There's not as much symbolism, but in the end, it does a good job. The theme of childhood in the book is because both Jet and Sasha have experienced childhood trauma. For Jet, it was sexual. And for Sasha, it was just physical or perhaps verbal abuse from her father. So they're both sort of stunted, which is why you see these allusions to fairy tales. There's a lot of stuffed animals. There's also crudely drawn figures. And at one point, Sasha says, it'll take us both years to figure out that we weren't queer because of abuse or molestation. So they have a lot of development to do because of the trauma that was inflicted on them. There's definitely a sense that they're lost, I think, in a, a large part of the way. And they found each other, which is the interesting thing, which is, I guess, why they're comfortable. And it is true that the way that Sasha sort of envisions her body, the way that uh, Diane de Massa sort of depicts it, ends up being so peculiar. Like, yeah, crude drawn figures, sometimes very, very sketchy, sometimes very lifeless, like almost ragdoll-esque, which is interesting. But I had wanted to ask you a question. So we sort of discussed the two rape scenes in the book. Well, one is a reference and one of them actually happens within the course of the graphic novel. But what about how Sasha deals with her father's abuse? Because there's this one page where this is the first time that it becomes like so transparent, where you see her father and he's holding the doctor symbol and he looks like he's about to beat someone with it. And that's it's so tangible with the motion of his body. Like there is a movement there. There is this pose of anger, this pose of force. And he's not presented very humorously. I think the, mo the most jokey thing about it is that he's holding that particular staff, and that's kind of it. So, like, what do you think of that? Because everything else in terms of his abuse is sort of alluded to verbally. At, at most, maybe you see, like, his head at one point, like, figuratively yelling at someone. What do you think of this depiction in comparison to the others, which you've been looking at symbolically? So I'm not a survivor of childhood physical abuse, so this is not triggering for me. This page honestly made me feel more of a sense of connection with the author, specifically because of the line, it took me years to think of what happened as abuse, which is true for a lot of children who go through abuse. You kind of, you can't believe that your parent would hurt you because it would be too difficult for your brain to process that the person who is in charge of keeping you alive could hurt you or even kill you. So what ends up happening is that children blame themselves and they think there's a problem wrong with them, which is why their parents are acting this way. And indeed, at the bottom she says, and I was sure that too was all my fault. 
She even mentions in the page that the story she heard about abuse didn't really fit. Like, she comes from this middle-class home, potentially upper-middle-class, like, they have money, they live in a good neighborhood, and yet she's an abuse survivor. And he's a doctor. That's what's so powerful about that page, is that the dad is beating her with the doctor's stick. So while he helps save other people, he doesn't save her. And at one point she does say, like, I represented the child that he could not save because I needed to be saved from him. Actually, it's really fascinating how Sasha in different periods becomes a symbol for her parents. Her father, in terms of the child that he could not save, for her mother, the Holocaust survivor, mm-hmm. again, both related to the shaved head, but like, isn't that such an interesting thing to have also woven into the story of tragedy, right? Like, there are so many multiple layers of tragedy mm-hmm. in this one particular graphic novel in terms of like grief over losing a parent, anger slash grief over, I, grief is not the right word, but like over that abuse. And then you have these reminders sort of of this traumatic historical past all sort of woven in together, like trauma within a family, trauma within multiple generations of a family, within a people. So it's it's so multi-layered. There's also a different kind of trauma that we didn't talk about yet, the trauma of illness. Her dad getting the tumor and then having a heart attack, which is a huge part of the book. In fact, it sets the tone for the book. The first joke is called A Joke I Know, and it's essentially these prisoners of war given two options. You can either be killed or suffer in filth, which is basically being sodomized by every man in the army. And the punchline is one of the prisoners chooses in filth and the commander yells, death by in filth. <laughs> which is funny because all of the times I read this joke, I never laughed. And now that I'm reading it with somebody else, this is actually the first time I laughed at that joke. I wonder why. (laughs) It's because laughter is a social emotion. Uh, So you might have noticed when you're by yourself, you don't laugh as much. Laughter is basically a way of communicating with other people. So when you're present with other people, you're much more likely to laugh. So initially, this joke looks like a joke about sexual violence, right? But then, almost halfway through the book, when she's talking about her dad who died of cancer, it says, death by infilt. Which is because terminal illness and sexual violence have a lot of similarities. They're both your body being turned against you or being used against you. In both cases, you lose your sense of agency. And you also have things that you do not want inserted in your body, whether, you know, it being sexual or just needles entering your body for blood tests or injections. So while there's a lot of different kinds of trauma in this book, she ties it all together through these common links and through grief as well, because she feels grief for all of these traumas that have happened to her. I think bodies are definitely intimately linked within the story itself, with the abuse survivor and the cancer patient, with the even her and her father end up getting intimately linked in several different ways, in ways that she admits, like with the whole kind of heart metaphor. He has a heart attack, her heart gets broken, like there's an interesting bit of like synchronicity mm-hmm. there. If I may, it's almost like the heredity of trauma, which 
ties back to the Holocaust trauma reference. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so like it's interesting how these things are all sort of linked so intimately together. One of the things I was kind of thinking of, even referring back to the whole symbolism thing, uh, so the rabbit represents her as a child, right? And there's this one passage when, I'm not sure if this is the first time the rabbit appears, it might be, where she's talking about how she lent it to a friend, and it comes back soiled. And the reason is because her friend has seizures, except she doesn't know that, she finds out much later in life. And so there's this pang of kind of sympathy that goes backwards in time. But what I thought was so interesting is that at the same time, the rabbit is soiled, her childhood is soiled. Quite literally, like, it's her father's abuse soiled parts of her childhood. Um, and so, again, there's a linking of bodies there. There's a linking of bodies between her and the rabbit. Mm. And also, at one point, she talks about how she wasn't allowed to play with blocks because she was a girl. And one of the boys is like, yeah, what part of weenie don't you understand? <laughs> so that also ties back yeah. to her body. Which I guess, like, makes so much sense. Because as, like, even as a cancer patient, I think of people who I've known who are in, like, remission now, who definitely are very bodily present, oh, or yeah. very bodily conscious, either constant fear of getting sick again, constant awareness of aches and pains, of the scars. Mm -hmm. Like, anybody with scars, like, really, really deep scars will know this, who's gone through surgery. Like, they're just sometimes where your body aches where the scar was, or the scar is, rather. And so there, I, I guess you can't really escape it. There is that sort of bodily understanding. And same thing for abuse survivors, whether it be sexual assault survivors, or whether it be, like, physical abuse from, like, as a child. I'm curious to see how that would work for sort of verbal abuse, but even then I wonder if there might be some conflations. I can tell you about verbal abuse. Hey. I've survived it a lot. Um, <laughs> for the verbal abuse, it's not a, it's not physical reminders, it's emotional reminders. Okay. For example, if my boyfriend criticizes anything, even constructively, if he says, just the slightest thing wrong, I'll blow up because all of the past abuse that I shoved down comes to the surface. And especially as a child in those formative years, it just sort of becomes a part of who you are. Like you said, those scars are there. And a lot of the time you can be good at managing them, but let's say you're emotionally already at a six or a seven, the tiniest little thing will set you off and remind you of all those past abuses and suddenly in the moment it feels like you're back there that child having to protect yourself and you like lash out at people so it finds an outward representation even though it's an inward mm -hmm. thing i know that like for people with anxiety obviously like there's a certain physical manifestation of like pain in terms of like when i get very very anxious like my body kind of sizes up and i feel like vomiting like it's a very stomach related mm -hmm. thing for me, I get panic attacks. It feels like my whole body is contracting, and it's super painful. <laughs> so again, bo body and mind is an interesting kind of connection. Like, even Jet mentions this, right? Like, to be fair, she's, hers is more of a physical kind of related thing, but at the same time, she mentions the whole nervous stomach. So again, mind, body, interesting connections, mm -hmm. to be sure. If you're actually interested in the link between psychology and the body, you should read The Body Keeps the Score amazing book about the connection between trauma and the body and how your body essentially has memories of its own when it comes to trauma. Trauma is not just psychological. Even if you have suffered from psychological abuse, your body bears the scars as well. So I highly recommend that book if you're interested in that link. Going back to the death by infilt. Yes. <laughs> this time examining it from a humor perspective. Because even though you might not think so at first, a lot of the book is supposed to be funny or I don't know if you're supposed to laugh but there's definitely elements of humor in it 
Some of it could be superiority theory. That's when you're essentially laughing at somebody because you think you're better than them. But a lot of it is also incongruity theory, which is basically when you laugh because something random or unexpected happens and you find that amusing. There's also relief theory, which is essentially you're laughing to let stress out of your body. If somebody is talking about something taboo that you're not allowed to talk about with other people, joking about it serves as sort of a stress valve release, like a kettle blowing out steam, which is a lot of what happens in this book. But using Freud's theory of humor, the reason why she uses a lot of humor in this is because humor allows you to joke about things that you're not allowed to talk about. And I just want to stress that this is why the book is formatted the way it is, because it is those bubbles of thoughts that your unconscious cannot process on its own that need to rise to the surface in order to help you heal. And so that's why a lot of the jokes are so sardonic. Yeah, well, I think it's important to keep in mind this book came out in 2006, so like so long before like the current discussion. But it's also, like, it contains so many taboo topics, so it makes sense. I feel I definitely subscribe to the whole relief theory part of it, because all the jokes sort of felt like pressure valve releases. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, okay, we can kind of, like, go back to zero now and start mm-hmm. over. But I think she covers so many taboo topics. Uh, just the idea of her searching through medical records, which she really shouldn't be doing. <laughs> Her uh, showing naked bodies all over the place, her talking about abuse, different kinds of abuse, her showing death in kind of intimate detail. Showing penises in graphic detail. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we usually do not get that in media. It's always women. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I was like, the symbolic like, penis drawn on a wall kind of thing. Like, actual, like... <laughs> an actual, very disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> I love the different... Like, <laughs> the first time I opened the book, it was coincidentally to a page where there was a naked patient and you see the penis. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, thanks. This is the first thing I wanted to see. It's actually just, I think, the first, yes, the page with the huge penis is actually page number four. So it sets the tone of the book as well. Very interesting. There's a lot more of a focus on the kind of penile than there necessarily is on the vaginal, which is an interesting reversal. And different kinds of penises. The penis is what hurt her, right? Yeah. Her father, you know, as a man, was the one who abused her. So even though for her it wasn't a sexual trauma, I feel like that might still be a part of it. I don't, I'm not that informed about just general physical violence as opposed to sexual, but I wouldn't be surprised if that was a part of it. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, most of the patients she encounters are male. True. So there's like a weird power dynamic there where she's supposed to be in charge, but they're men and she's also younger than them. Mm-hmm. It's a weird, like, I'm uncomfortable, I don't know what to do here. <laughs> Which I guess is maybe the point, is like meant to kind of increase that tension, being like, ooh, how do we react to this? I think the only, besides the two women she works with, I think we only even see one of them, I don't think we even see the other one. There's only one woman that I can remember, and she's not even a patient. Isn't she? She's the woman who who's pregnant, but who wants drugs. I thought she was a patient. Well, the way Lois talked about it made her sound as if she wasn't. Maybe she is. She's also in, like, a gown. Like, there are a few peculiar things about it. But, again, I think she's the only female patient that we really see. And I think the... I don't even think you see her belly naked. I think you... Like, she's actually really covered as a person. Like, she has a bandana on. She has the gown. 
And if she is actually pregnant, like, she's also a mother figure, so there's something, like, very unsettling about, like, not just about her, but about that entire encounter. Yeah, because she wants, like, drugs and cigarettes, even though she's pregnant. Oh, here we exactly. go. Finally. And wow, coffee. it's way at the beginning. It's 22 to... Yeah, you do see her belly and the pit of her breast. Oh, okay, okay. So you do actually see some she of her body. she raises it to rub it. Yeah. <laughs> like, so, so, yeah, you see some of her body. But again, like, the pregnant part of the body, which is definitely interesting. So, yeah, I guess, like, on that topic of bodies, not just penile ones, <laughs> penis having ones, but, like, bodies... The graphic novel is so interesting because it portrays bodies in such a grotesque way, I find. Regardless of gender, regardless of whether you're clothed or not, though mostly when you're naked, there's just something so alien, and like to the point where there's even a moment where she depicts an alien with breasts and a penis. Mm-hmm. And there's just like, I guess that's just the thing, especially with cancer, it makes your body so alien to yourself, and same thing with abuse. Yeah. Um, it's like where you don't even quite understand it anymore, and so bodies throughout the book are just so just so odd and like I was always kind of noting about how like certain cheeks were like hollowed out especially hers throughout there were many instances where her eyes were kind of blank you see that on the cover even mm-hmm. and so they, she almost seems like a marionette uh almost like a doll but like not a doll that kids would typically play with and I was always just constantly struck by that and I was that's how I rationalized the sheer amount of like nakedness within the book is just to kind of show how peculiar the body can be. Like there's the scene where she goes to see the patient where his penis is poking out from underneath. But then there's also another scene where she's going to see a man from a group home and he's just completely naked and has something to collect urine, which you see in the picture. And again, she didn't need to include any of these instances, but they're there. And there's just so, like, there's something so arresting about all of them, but you want to look away. Like, it's this weird kind of dual thing where I was, I was reading it in public, like, on public oh, transit. <laughs> it was an interesting thing. I'm just like, nobody look at me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I swear this isn't porn. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is an important graphic novel, guys. <laughs> and so I was reading it, and I'm like, I wanted to flip the page, but I'm also just like, but you're depicting it in ways that you wouldn't really expect either. Like, again, sometimes penises don't really look like penises. They just sort of look like these odd addendums to the body. Even hearts don't always look like hearts, especially when they're being kind of crushed. And I think that's just... Maybe that's what hospital spaces do to you. You kind of realize how weird bodies can be. It's also very Freudian just in terms of all of the sexual depiction because sexuality is still very taboo in our society. So I saw it as just a nod, (laughs) sort of an (laughs) obvious nod to Freud and just as another bubble bubbling up, but it does also make a lot of sense with all of the trauma and your body not feeling like it's yours. A lot of trauma survivors, whether it's sexual or not, don't like having a body. Mm-hmm. Everybody I talk to that has had some sort of trauma jokes about, oh, I wish I was a cloud of consciousness, mm-hmm. including myself. <laughs> I get that. I think one of the reasons I brought up the grotesque so much and like what was so interesting is because I related to the story in like a very indirect way. So my mother actually at the age of 18, 19 worked in a hospital for about a good 20 years and she had a similar job. She was basically working in discharge. So she would have to go to rooms and get signatures. And like, I've grown up on these stories of her having to go see people, whether it be people who we knew in the neighborhood, which is like very, very strange or like their fathers or their mothers AIDS patients who she had to kind of encounter in like the late 80s, pregnant women, people who were institutionalized for a variety of other reasons. And she never really included stories of the grotesque, which is weird. (laughs) You would have expected more of them. 
But she always kind of mentioned how, like, weirdly out of body she felt, like, when she was working. Because there was this need for distance. And then when she kind of came back into herself, it was a bit of a weird one. Like, she has this one particular story about Ghost of the Victoria where she had fallen asleep and had an out-of-body experience and, like, met people. And she's, like, so convinced. This is a story she loves to repeat outside of the whole, like, oh, I met this person, I met that person. And I, like, used to get signatures. And so it was really funny kind of seeing Sasha, like, in this context that I associate with my mother... And then surrounded by naked bodies and grotesque bodies. And and then also, like, her having a parent who has cancer, my mother had cancer. So, like, it's just an interesting kind of confluence of different themes and different story elements that sort of connect together in ways that I wasn't really expecting. Let's move on to our last point of discussion, which is how the book portrays grief. I'm specifically thinking of her father's funeral when she and her brother start joking and are struggling not to laugh, and they get a bunch of dirty looks. And then she says, we have forgotten where we are. I can see why it would not be okay to laugh at a funeral. But at the same time, laughter, like we were talking about with relief theory, is a way of dealing with stress. It can also be play theory that's turning something scary into play, so turning it into something not threatening. So there's a lot of ways that laughter and humor can be used to deal with grief. I know I mention this a lot, but, you know, as a trauma survivor, one of my favorite things to do when I'm talking about my trauma is to turn it into jokes because then people are more likely... Well, that's not true. They look uncomfortable anyway. Sometimes they look more uncomfortable because they're like, why are you laughing about your rape story? Can I laugh at this? Yes, exactly. (laughs) So it's just a really good way of dealing with grief and stress and those kinds of things. So I thought it was interesting that as a society, we're like, oh, if you're sad, you have to only be sad. You're not allowed to laugh about serious things. I remember a couple of years ago, a lot of feminists were against rape jokes, even Roxanne Gay, because they're like, oh, it's not funny. You can't laugh about that. It's too serious of a topic, which I think is bullshit. You can laugh about anything if you make it funny, but also appropriate. It's about the intent of the joke. I mean, I think you bring up a really good point in the sense of we as a society have this weird idea about what grief should be. I feel like for the longest time I've heard so many people say like, oh, I want to, this is going to sound really like a hope and I apologize in advance, but I want to have a funeral like the Irish. Let me explain because that sounds really bad. (laughs) This is a common thing that happens within my family and it's just because the wakes at Irish funerals are not meant to be like sad, solemn occasions. They definitely can be. There's sadness mixed with happiness. It's also because people like joke around and they laugh and they remember. And so there's something very positive about that as well. Whereas like funerals, especially kind of in the past, were such solemn affairs. Like you would have like the family wailing over the coffin of the person. I don't mean to laugh, it's just like such a peculiar image. In ancient Rome, if you had a lot of money, you could pay random people who are like professional actors to go to your funeral and rip out their hair and rip their clothes so that, you know, you could look like you were an important person, even though you were dead, so what would you care? <laughs> I must look good even in death. <laughs> And so, like, that's the thing, right? Like, they're, they're supposed to be treated as these very, very solemn occasions. And they are. And people are sad. And you have to give space for that. But you also can't make it so that you deaden everything else, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like, laughter makes sense. And there's something so fake. And she mentions this, and I never really thought about it. But the whole, like, ritual element of it, right? Mm-hmm. The whole fact that funerals take on a very specific structure. Very much so, like, weddings and, like, 
traditional religious spaces where there's a certain set amount of phrases you have to say and everyone does the same thing and it's like but is this celebrating the person or is it just like you're participating in the ritual is that meant to be cleansing it's it's very much just like a performance exactly it is and maybe that helps some people get through it if you're that grief stricken maybe the performance is a good thing but i don't find generally that it helps and again there's something so fake about it which she notes as well like they were at this funeral, they had all the family there, and her father did not like these people. He had not seen them in years. Her grandfather was even complaining about the fact that he didn't see them very often. And then everyone was there, like, pretending as if, oh, like, we loved him so much. And it's like, true, they probably did love him, they grew up with him. Like, there is still that emotion there, and, like, I can't diminish that grief, but there's also something so insincere. Even the rabbi did not know him personally. And at one point, he's holding cliff notes, and on the cover it says, Alan. That's <laughs> like, I love that. And so, like, if you're the person who's kind of closest to the disease, like, how could you not find that funny? There is something, like, so absurd about that entire performance. It's true, because, like, he had the cliff notes. He confused the stories. And the only one that he got right, he turned into like this weird moralistic tale. And anyway, that's like one very interesting element of grief in its depiction. It's so fascinating to see how she has like such a multifaceted emotional approach to it, really. Mm. One of her friends also lost a father. Her depiction, I thought, was so fascinating. Because she also had an abusive father. She was also angry at him. His illness is so prolonged that there is a certain, and this sounds awful, but it's true, there's a certain relief in him passing away. And what I found so interesting about her is that they don't talk for a while after her father dies, and then she gets on the phone and she's angry at her friend because she's, she's grieving, yeah. She's not as torn up about his death as she maybe would have been in some other circumstance. But she's angry at her friend because she's like, well, why haven't you called me? And Sasha's like, oh, well, I wanted to give you space. And she's like, everybody has been giving me space. Like, this is not what I need. And then when Sasha's father passes away, when Alan passes away, she calls every day for a week. And again, I think that's so interestingly complicated. Like, Sasha and... I forget, I think her name was Maisie. Both of them had such complicated relationships with their fathers. They didn't always like their fathers. So they're angry, they're sad at the same time. Like, sad that they're dying, so that they're going to lose them. That's so difficult. And also kind of relieved when they pass away, because again... They're no longer in pain, but also the family is no longer this, like, dangling on a thread who knows what's going to happen sort of thing. Mm -hmm. There's so many emotions going on. I think it's also complicated when it's somebody who died that abused you as well, because there's mm -hmm. so much anger there. I've been experiencing that myself very recently. My grandfather just passed away a few days ago. But he sexually abused me. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought that when he would pass away, I would finally feel relief. And a lot of the pain of the abuse would go away. But it didn't. It's gotten worse. I am super angry. And I'm trying to shove it down because that's how I deal with my emotions. I know it's not healthy. So I recognize a lot of that now in the jokes in the unconscious book. How complicated your feelings for people can be, especially when there's somebody who you love, but they hurt you. And then when they pass and you're supposed to feel grief and sad, but you're also angry and there's a lot of unresolved issues and you realize well now I can't resolve them. Of course my grandfather had Alzheimer's so I couldn't confront him anyway. He wouldn't remember. Another complication. Another complication. <laughs> so I think yeah. she does a very good job of balancing all of these complicated themes and of balancing all of these different emotions into one concise text. Mm -hmm. Final grade. The moment has finally come. 
I'm giving my first funky A+. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) I do not think that you could improve this book. Honestly, this is probably one of my all-time favorite graphic novels. What I love about it, first of all, is that it talks about all this trauma, but it somehow manages to do so while not being as triggering as a lot of other testimonies of trauma that I have witnessed. It talks about these issues which are difficult, but in a way that is so relatable, it helps you feel not alone and work through your own trauma as well. When she talks about her dad being in the hospital, or even just her being in the hospital, it reminded me of how I felt when one of my siblings was diagnosed with cancer. Our family was already dysfunctional, and that was the straw that broke the camel's back. Our family situation deteriorated. I always find it refreshing. Again, with the relief theory, it sort of lets me let out some of that steam to witness other testimonies like this. It is upsetting, but not too upsetting, if that makes sense. It's just very human and relatable, which I really enjoy. Every time I read it, I find more symbolism and bits of the motif. It's really a nice read with a lot of meat on its bones. It's queer. It's an amazing read, and I'm really sad that it didn't get the reputation that it deserved when it came out more than 10 years ago. It was definitely ahead of its time. I love the art style, too. I actually cannot think of anything bad to say about this graphic novel, which is why it has to be an A-plus for me. So congratulations, Jokes in the Unconscious, (laughs) the first funky A-plus from Mel. Yay! (laughs) Again, it is a really good graphic novel. I think I would still keep mine to a funky A, however. (laughs) (laughs) Again, it's one of those things that you need to read again and again and again to fully get the full scope of it, and I've only really read it once. It's to fully understand what some of the jokes are trying to allude to, I think. Because there are just so many of them sort of sprinkled throughout The ending is a good job at maybe putting that into perspective, where it says she's trying to find the right joke to handle the situation, to feel better, to fully communicate it. And she hasn't found it yet, but once she does, it'll go here. The rest of them, there's still something I need to unpack. I did like the jokes. I did not find all of them funny, I will admit. But I could see what her intention was with them. There was clearly an aim there. I just need to figure out what it is. Otherwise, though, as Mel already said, really, really fascinating art, great art. Really interesting to unpack. So much symbolism there. The story just keeps you engaged throughout the entire thing. I really just read it in one sitting. I like, could not stop from like where I was working to the bus to back at home. I just could not stop. So really, really fascinating read. Definitely worth checking out. And I think that there's a, just a lot there for everybody to understand, even if you haven't necessarily gone through something similar. I think grief is a universal experience, probably. But even if you're less familiar with it, like if you're fortunate enough to be less familiar with it, I think that There's something so very human about all the emotions there. It's so easy to comprehend through the way she communicates them. And I think it's just, it's an interesting setting. Even like hospitals, the way that people kind of connect, bodies, the way that they work. Just there is so much, as Mel said, so much meat on its bones that it's definitely worth people's time. It reminds me of a quote from Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. George says, the truth is when you slosh aside all of the organs and see what's underneath and to me that's what this book is in a very (laughs) grotesque bodily kind of way it's really looking at the nitty-gritty of the human experience and I also 
wanted to say that you don't have to laugh at the jokes. You don't have to find them funny. There's a difference between recognizing humor in something and laughing at it. Like, I personally also did not laugh at a lot of the jokes. The jokes are just there to bubble up these emotions, and they can be funny, but they don't have to be. And whether you think they're funny or not, they have elements of humor in them, yeah. if that makes sense. No, I think I, I I agree. I definitely agree. And I can see, as you said, like you read it out loud for the first time and you laughed. So maybe that's also it, the shared mm-hmm. kind of element of it, in addition. Mm-hmm. I don't think that the jokes are necessarily supposed to make you laugh. Maybe not. I think they're also partially there to make you uncomfortable. Yeah, that's true. That's it's, It also works as a transition, right? It's sort of be like, this is just here. Is this appropriate here? Eh, who knows? But like, yeah, we're going to exactly. move between this and the next exactly. thing. Exactly. Bubbles from the unconscious. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I think that's a big thing about the graphic novel as a whole. It's like, it's meant to take... It, it shows the absurdity of so many different things and the awkwardness of so many different things. The awkwardness of illness. The awkwardness of being in a hospital. Awkwardness and the absurdity of just having certain people in your life as well, like her best friend. The absurdity of certain relationships you have to have like with co-workers like Lois is just ridiculous like she just jokes about really weird things is not a very good co-worker the absurdity you have in terms of relationships with like your family's friends that kind of thing so it's like it's just a very good look at the sloshing aside as you of, the said, organs, yeah. of the sloshing aside of the organs of the sort of rawness of humanity mm-hmm. yeah well that's all for now as always thank you for listening if you have any opinions about the book that we did not mention feel free to leave them in the comments also if you would like us to talk about any graphic novels that you read that we haven't or an animated series or a tv show please let us know in the comics yeah and if you liked it obviously subscribe like the video uh, if you're listening to us on itunes leave a review we'd be happy to get some of your thoughts and thanks mm-hmm.